I had a, one of my favorite classes, actually one of my favorite professors in grad school, uh, taught a class on uh, what he called situational versus absolute ethics. Now, I'm not going to go into it because already you sound, you look very bored, right? Um, but he was very much a postmodernist, very much someone who liked uh, Immanuel Kant, someone who uh, really enjoyed that if you're into philosophy. And for Christians, this is really hard to, to study because the whole idea is that ethics is really situational. There's nothing absolute. It's that kind of normal idea of relativism. Well, one of the main thesis statements he had for the entire class was Confucius was better than Jesus. And he used the golden rule to prove his point. Confucius, 500 years before Jesus, basically said, don't do unto others what you wouldn't have them do unto you. And he says, this is a much better statement than the golden rule, because what you're ultimately telling people is, don't do something to me, not do something to someone else. And when you do someone to some, something to someone else, even if it's good, you're encroaching on their individuality and their, you know, their sort of personhood. And the entire rest of the class, he tried to kind of prove this point. And while I love him as a professor, and I loved the six or seven classes I took from him, I absolutely disagreed with this point. Because I think this is a common idea in our individualistic society, is that if we are just passive enough, don't make waves enough, don't proact to do stuff, we can be a pretty good person. And there's more risk in being a bad person if we do too many things than if we just sit back and sort of let things play out. Oh, well, we thought about it, uh, we considered it, we spoke about it, but never actually did something. And if there's one really core point to the gospel, you have to understand the good news is it's about Jesus doing things intentionally in our world. Luke 6 through 7 is, is the, the ethics a section of Jesus' teachings. Most of what he's doing, even with the golden rule, which remember is superseded by the better rule, which is not just love people like you want them to love you, but love them like I've loved them. He's really just sort of picking up on the ethics of society and doing what, you know, everybody else sort of already knew. He just sort of said it probably in the best way, the most memorable way, and in an emphatic way. But Luke 6 through 7 is the ethics of Christianity, or sort of the proactive, here's what you should do in your faith. And so I want to read this because I just absolutely uh, love it. And I think that uh, when you look at this, this, these two passages that you could preach years of sermons on, I really want you to focus on it as we read, and if you have questions, that's great too, from the perspective of every single story and image he gives, including himself, someone is doing something. They're taking an idea, a theory, a thought, and putting it into action in accordance with their faith. Every single time. And I think if you read through 6 and 7 with that perspective, you're going to see something. Um, Real quick, let me just ask you, we've started off each of these sermons with a couple just sort of questions, get people talking, good stuff. Uh, why is it that people have trouble acting on what's right? And thinking about it, people not so much, but you in particular, acting on what's right. We know we have those situations where there's some motivation inside of us, some desire, some spiritual leading, whatever, to do something right, and we're incredibly good at talking ourselves out of doing stuff sitting back and then wondering in retrospect, should I have done that? 
And if you have a terrible memory like me, it doesn't last, and so you just wait till each situation comes and goes, and then, you know, uh, you feel guilty and then forget about feeling guilty. But why is it that it's so tough for us not to act in a situation where we know or think something is the right thing to do? All right, not a bigger deal or making a deal of something that might not be something in the first place. I think that's a big thing. Um, actually, it's really interesting in, I, I know I haven't talked about sociology for a while, it's because I quit teaching, but here, here I go again talking about it. Um, one of the things that a lot of ethicists and people who study sort of recent morality have noticed about millennials is that they are pretty ethical people, yet have no basis for talking about ethics. They just don't know. You, you could give them a series of questions and say, what would be an ethical choice versus a non-ethical choice? And most young millennials just simply kind of don't really know how to talk about ethics. It's like they can do it naturally, but knowing what's right, what's a big deal versus what's a small deal is really hard for us in a pluralistic society. And you've heard that before, where there are all these viewpoints and all these voices saying, this is right, this is wrong, uh, you know, but how do you even determine some system? Of course, the whole idea that all of it's relative and it doesn't really matter and it all should operate sort of within you and within your heart is the obvious answer to being overwhelmed with choices, right? It's like why Raising Cane's, everyone loves Raising Cane's because you only have like three choices, you know? Um, I know, I don't like it either, you know? But um, it's like every time you watch Gordon Ramsay's whatever that show is about where he cusses a lot at people. Hell's Kitchen, no, 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 not that one. The one where like they're rehabbing restaurants. Kitchen Nightmares, yeah. Uh, one of the main things they say in every one is this menu is too big. You know, you got to give people, you know, a few choices. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, in face of all the choices, it's sometimes hard for us to, to come up with anything that's truly right or whatever else. What else? Okay. Right, yeah, well, I mean, just the fear of, of the unknown, of something we can't control uh, of someone taking something wrong, uh, it's just much easier to kind of sit back and not have to do anything about it. Yeah, just some. A lot of those moments kind of become memories because they're thinking Right, yeah, too busy, sure. The uh, question is just well, why do we uh, uh, often not do what's right or, or we have an anxiety to act when we know something may be right, but instead we just sort of sit and process it before we actually do anything about it. No, no, yeah, that's true. I mean, and I think just the, the traditional trope or cliche of fear of rejection, although in this case, I think our fear of rejection is often manifested in, in a way that's, well, I don't want to come across as conforming to someone else's ideas about how I should act. Of course, the irony is we end up conforming to someone else's ideas of how we should act, because none of us are just coming up with a new way to act in every moment. Um, so then it becomes about the priorities of, of how I should act and conforming. So there's a huge irony in that. Now, I'm not at all trying to address, uh, uh, um, suggest that there is some easy path of doing what's right in every situation. I, I have said something that I think a lot of ministers find offensive, and I'm okay with it, is that I do believe that while reality is absolute, a lot of truth can be very relative. What I mean by that is... Truth can be, I mean, capital T truth, of course, is equal to reality. And so who God is and what he's doing, yes, that's firm and fixed. But in terms of how we ought to operate in a situation is going to have a lot to do with our experience and culture and where God's leading us. Uh, Luke is saying this in 6 through 7. 
Notice as uh, this crescendo of this story kind of happens where John starts to question Jesus himself, which is interesting considering he's the greatest man to ever live uh, before Jesus. He questions, is Jesus kind of really who he says he is? And the scripture is portraying them as doing two different, very different kinds of ministry. In fact, Jesus plays on this later on when he says, you know, we played, we did a, a, played the flute and you didn't dance, played a dirge and you didn't, I can't remember, cry, whatever. Um, but he's playing on the idea that there are two very effective and different ways of doing ministry at least in both Jesus and John's life. Jesus ate with sinners. John was out in the Baptist eating locusts. I mean, I don't, that is, I would much rather be with Jesus' method of ministry on that one. All right? But even in this passage, there's this sort of tension between a plurality of kind of doing things, different ways of doing things. So I want to read through this with you, and then uh, I I don't have much to say uh, actually after it. In fact, I don't think I have anything. Um, But during, after communion and during our worship time, I really want you to kind of go around. There's about 13 quotes around the room, and these quotes, I, I love quotes. Quotes are helpful for me because I can remember them. It's sort of like um, when you memorize the scripture and it kind of comes to your mind in moments as you've taught it, things like that. It's just really helpful for me in terms of helping chart a path for what I should do next, how I should respond to a situation. When those things are like in my mind, uh, and I'm pretty ADD, uh, ADHD, whatever, and so the whole story might be hard to you know, remember, but a quick quote or something that comes to my mind is great. So I pull a bunch of quotes. You don't have to go by and look at every single one of them. In fact, that's probably not the greatest thing, at least not during worship. But go by as we're singing, and if you're not a big fan of singing or if you want to do something a little different this morning, go by and look at one of the quotes and just reflect on it. Reflect on what we've talked about in this Luke 6 and 7. Reflect on how you could, in line with this quote, sort of take initiative in your own life to live out your faith. I will tell you these quotes are, I'm not into the whole secular spiritual thing, but it's just easy to use as an explanation. These are secular quotes from from really famous people. All right, And most of the time when they're talking about initiative, I think they're often talking about you being driven by your own passion and doing stuff that you want to do, which is our world's wisdom uh, in initiative is it's a virtue in and of itself. But in the good news, it's not a virtue in and of itself. Taking initiative is no better than not taking initiative if the product of that initiative or the goal of that initiative isn't to minister to other people to do what's best for the people around you. You can take initiative all day long in your workplace and in your dreams and visions of becoming all these great things, but if your initiative at the end of the day isn't a relational initiative, it's not ministering to other people, it's not the good news ultimately, or at least it's not at the core of the good news. And so I want you to think about that as you're responding to some of those quotes, thinking maybe you just need to sit and think about it, maybe you need to laugh, a couple of them I think are pretty funny, um, and, uh, and as you respond uh, to that, okay? And if you have anything to share during our worship time, you're always welcome to. So here we go, Luke 6. Again, I want you to think about how much this central two chapters of Jesus' ministry and his ultimately sermon on ethics and how we should behave has to do with people taking initiative and how much the people who don't, who sit back and watch things from afar are, are compared to those who act. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Action. They're hungry. They're going to do this, even though it's technically uh, a no-no on the Sabbath. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? 
Jesus answered them, have you never read what David did when he and companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, taking the consecrated bread, and ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. And he gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, this is a very interesting reference. Because David was chastised for what he did. And this wasn't really a good behavior that, that uh, Jesus is going back and saying, point, to, look how David did this and went into the temple and did what was unlawful. But what he's saying is he took action for him and his companions in a time where uh, arguably we can understand what David was doing. He was hungry, he needed food, he was on the run uh, from you know, Saul, and, uh, and he took action. And he did it with other people's interest in mind. On another Sabbath, he went to synagogue and was teaching. And a man there whose right hand was shriveled, sorry, a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. The irony here, guys, is dripping. Uh, Luke is basically showing how much they're passively watching and waiting for God himself to act, and they're ready to jump on him for it. I mean, just, just here they are. Jesus is about to heal someone, take care of someone's shriveled hand, which would have kept them from working, providing for their family, whatever else. And they're sitting back watching, ready to accuse God himself of doing something wrong in accordance with their law and their culture of not acting on the Sabbath. This is challenging stuff. Okay? Totally forgot where I went. So, uh... Yep, thank you. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to him, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or destroy it? In Jesus' mind, inaction is evil action. As you're going to see in James over there, if anybody who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. There is no middle ground. I even quoted the Lumineers because I'm so cool and hipster. <laughs> but they're actually quoting Eli Wiesel when they say the, the opposite of love is indifference. I love that part of the song, you know? I was singing it this morning, but I will not sing it in front of you. If Ronnie was here, he would sing it, but I'm not that comfortable yet in my life. <laughs> he looked around at them and all of them said to them, stretch out your hand. He did so and his hand was completely restored. But they were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Initiative and action, particularly against our norms and mores and all of the things that we think are lawful to do and tactful to do, make people mad. And they often make people mad precisely because they know they ought to be doing it. <laughs> On one of those days, Jesus went out into the hills to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him, and they're the names, uh, and even Judas Iscariot, who had became, become a traitor. This is actually kind of amazing. If you think about the initiative it would take for Jesus to go out and choose someone he knew would cause him the kind of pain he would cause. If most of us could see into the future of our potential friendships, we probably wouldn't get into friendships that were going to hurt us in the long term. None of us would take initiative. Most of us won't even take initiative if we get a hint of a friendship that might go south or someone who I might not get along with. But Jesus was ready to do this even with this man who would ultimately betray him. That took a night of prayer before, I think, for him to be convinced of that. But uh, yeah, 
He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by evil spirits were cured and the people all tried to touch him. Okay, just stop there for a moment. For those of you who are not big huggers and people who like people touching you, can you imagine everybody trying to rush and touch you? It's kind of like those things we do. Back early years when we'd send people out and everyone would like gather around them and put hands around them and you get those sweaty and then clammy hands and you're just like, oh my goodness. So people are surrounding him trying to, trying to touch him. Uh, nope, that's okay. Because power was coming from him and healing them all. He was among them and he was healing them. Look at his disciples, he said. Blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. I, just that he gives the Sermon on the Mount here uh, um, as people are around him, touching him, annoying him, is an even bigger testimony. It's kind of like Pilate, in front of Pilate, where he's still concerned about you know, giving him the perspective of truth, even though he knows Pilate has his life in his hands. But here in the, this context is when he's going to act, when he could have easily said, okay, we healed all these people, let's move on to the next city, you know? My power was coming out from me, uh, but instead he preaches, you know, uh, probably his best uh, and most memorable and most important ethics sermon. Rejoice in that day, day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their fathers treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. And woe to you when all men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. That takes initiative. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. Not forgive them and be done with it. Action. Turn to them the other cheek. I'm sorry, but some, reading some of this, you're just like, how is this possible? Because, you know, I've not been in a situation where I've had to do that. And if I was, I could tell you 100% I just wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't even let the first cheat get hit. Um, so, yeah. Uh, and that's just me being really honest with you. I know some of you, you know, that's, that's not where you're at, but that's just me when it comes to anger. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Now, this is exaggerative, and I do think this has gone a little too far in the way people interpret this. The goal, I think, is better to look at it as take action in these moments and take initiative. Do something. It's not even enough that someone's doing something to you and taking from you. You do something back that shows, uh, you know, you have their best interest in mind. That's just crazy. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners have that kind of passive love, right? Love those who love them. And if you could do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Reminds me of the passage in Paul where he's talking about while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, right? Sometimes people will die for a good guy, very rarely will someone actually die for a righteous person, because if they're good, that's sort of according to our definition. But while we were still sinners, he took that action. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you, will be not, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. 
for with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He's just referencing these like grain containers where apparently if you like shake the grain container, it's kind of like waiting for fizz to go down in your soda, right? You know, if you like, if it's really foamy, you know, you have like half fizz or bubbles. This was just take the shake, the grain container, shake it so you could get the most grain into that container possible. And a good person in the marketplace who really wanted to not cheat you would make sure and shake, 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 and get you as most of the grain as possible. And someone who would cheat you would be fine with just filling, 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 and then you have a lot of air and space in there. And he's saying, you know, you're going to get back what you ultimately give uh, in, in terms of, of, of that. And then gives that weird analogy that probably most of us would, would be passed over. Um, he told in this parable, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? If both people are passive and not acting and don't know how to lead, there you go. No one's moving. A student is not above his teacher, but everyone who's fully trained will be like his teacher. <laughs> the point here is not that you will know things like your teacher. It's that you will teach like your teacher is doing to you. It's active. It's taking initiative. A teacher is someone who teaches someone. And that's what he means there in terms of being like your teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? One of the best images we have, right? One of the most memorable. How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. The evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? I'll show you what he's like. He comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He's like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on a rock. When a flood came, the, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck the house, it clapped and its destruction was complete. Sort of like Brad Pitt's houses in House of Hurricane Katrina. <laughs> uh, Sorry, I thought that was more widely referenced. Uh, you would get that. Look into it. It's, it's sad. And they're pink, pink of all colors. When Jesus had finished saying all this and hearing uh, of the people, he entered Capernaum. There was a centurion servant whom his master valued highly was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent, took action, of elders, uh, Jews asking him to come and heal a servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves, you have to, uh, deserves for you to do this. He loves our nation and has built our synagogue, even though he's an outsider. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to him. Lord, don't trouble yourself. For I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I tell this one, go, and he goes. And this one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him and turning to the crowd, crowd, not just his disciples, said to them, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant, well, centurion sent him out, knew what was going to happen, took action, didn't wait for Jesus, knew the outcome. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, his disciples in a large crowd went along with him as he approached the town gate. A dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. A large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and said, don't cry. 
He then went up and touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. News about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. I want to say a quick note about that. Back probably 15 years ago when we first started teaching Korfas um, about the, the gospel um, and doing focus on Jesus and stuff, we used this text called the, um, the Life of Christ by, I can't remember what the guy's first name was because I only remembered his weird last name was Stalker. <laughs> That'd be a tough last name. Um, <laughs> But he was an Australian pastor, and he just talked about how Jesus' three years of ministry can be defined by this. The first two years, he went to the people. The last year, they came to him. I thought about how powerful that is in ministry, about going to the people first, and then when they know who you are, they come to you, and how few of us think about ministry that way. Uh, again, lost my place. Someone? Thank you. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord and asked, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Now, here's the thing about this one. It gets, it gets kind of glossed over. But in essence, John is saying to Jesus, are you who you say you are? He starts off with the faith in Jesus to assume that what he's doing is a sign of God. But then as his ministry starts going and is certainly different than John's ministry, John himself is saying, what is happening here? Is this really Jesus or like the people who said above him, is this just a prophet who's doing some weird prophet type stuff? John is questioning Jesus. And instead of, of sitting back and kind of still doing his deal and not really worrying about it, he sends folks to him to ask him the question, takes initiative, uh, and uh, Jesus gives him this response that apparently is enough for John to die on. John the Baptist sent us to you. Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? At the very time Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, gave sight to many who were blind, so he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, but the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Why would he say that? Well, it's simple. Jesus was doing ministry in a way that was only prophesied in the Old Testament that most people hadn't picked up on, and most people just had bigger expectations for Jesus than one-on-one -on -one ministry. At the end of the day, when it came to Jesus' initiative in this world, it was supposed to be big, loud, amazing, and wonderful, like most of our aspirations and passions are. But Jesus came and simply went to some of the lowliest people and did some of the most mundane things around him, and that was his mission. And that made John stumble. Even in his expectation, this, this uh, greatest man who had ever lived, uh, in terms of if Jesus was the right one. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces, sitting back passively and watching the world go by. What did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one uh, about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before me. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' word, acknowledged that God was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and experts in law rejected God's purpose for them because they had not been baptized by John, hadn't been according to the right way, not their way. 
To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the flute for you. Why didn't you dance? We sang a dirge and you didn't cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking wine and you say he has a demon. Son of man came eating and drinking and you say here's a glutton and a drunkard, friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. Another passage says wisdom is proved right by her actions, by the initiative that wisdom causes people to take in their lives. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume and as stood behind him at his feet weeping, began to wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. This was an absolutely embarrassing situation for her. I mean, in no way was this going to be a good situation, okay? She was going in front of a bunch of wise men who had already accused her of things, she was a sinful woman weeping in her frailty and in her uh, just sort of disgust. And, uh, and she, uh, she took the initiative to go and do this. And this would have been absolutely inappropriate in her culture. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. She's a sinner. Jesus answered him in one of probably the, the most biting rebukes, I think. Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had bigger debt canceled. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. In action. She wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Initiative. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who has been forgiven little loves little and acts little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Uh, I wrote this stupid alliteration because I like alliteration and it's like the only thing I can do, but it's like kindergarten style. So I'm going to give it to you and then we're going to take a break for communion. And then uh, again, go and look at some of those quotes if you want to respond, if you want to write something down, if you want to think, man, where is a, an area of my life in my relationships? I need to take action this next week. Uh, that's very much in service of God. And to be thinking about how the good news when we really understand it, when we really recognize how much has God has taken initiative in our lives, our natural response as we reflect on it is to go and do likewise. I just said Jesus doesn't sit back pondering in passivity the potential for his actions. He moved. He did stuff. Uh, from place to place, he did stuff. Lord God, thank you so much for uh, just how you give us boldness in our relationships despite our timidity and fear in a time where ideas are attacked so easily in every forum. Help us to do what's right for people. Um, when we think about what's right, when we think about um, our actions and our behaviors, that first and foremost, we would remember that we are people keeper, keepers. We look out for people. We're shepherds. We do what's best for other people regardless of what it costs us. Help us to take initiative in our lives, in the world around us, in politics, in our relationships, in any and every environment uh, that you lead us 
and that we have capabilities and competencies to do. And Lord, help us not to make the mistake of thinking that our actions and our initiatives are the things that ultimately make us good people, but to do those things out of our deep understanding of your love for us and knowing the kind of initiative that you took, that while we were still cursing your name, you did what you did for us, to open up a path to understand you and to see your character and to give us your spirit to empower us to have that very character in the lives that we live. Thank you, Jesus, for that model. And we celebrate you now as we take communion. Amen. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.